from one of our missionaries, actually a missionary that is brand new in terms of the list of those so that we are as a church supporting, uh, Steve Edging. Steve, why don't you come on up here? Steve and his wife, Brooke, were kind enough to share with us some of what's been going on uh, in their years there in Uganda. Uh, Steve is a and his wife, Brooke, are missionaries with Mission to the World, MTW. That is the global international mission agency of the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA, of which we are a part. It is a joy to have you here, brother. Thanks Thank for being you. here for the yes. whole morning. Yeah. It's my, my privilege. If I may, I'm going to... Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark 9, 1 through 13. And by way of greeting, let me say, Yesu Yebazibwe. Wait, where's the response? You're supposed to say, Amina. Let's try this again. Yesu Yebazibwe. Well done. Now you're a Ugandan audience, you know, congregation. That uh, simply just means, praise Jesus. Okay? It's a very common greeting in church on Sundays, and we say it. Often, but um, my, again, this is Brooke, my wife, and I'm Stephen. We're so glad to be with you. And uh, like Richard said, we are missionaries serving in Uganda. And as we shared this morning in Sunday schools, we're going to talk about today how you view things. And today in this text, how you view Jesus is important. And how do you view him? It, it's having the right view is a big problem in Uganda. And it's a big problem in America. And so now, uh, please read with me Mark 9, 1 through 13. This is the Word of God. And he said to them, Truly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared with him Elijah and Moses. And they were talking with Jesus, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning, what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that the Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first. To restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as is written of him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this morning we want to see and hear Jesus. We want to listen to this text and listen to you when you say, listen to him. And Lord, we want to see what you have to show us and what Jesus had to show the disciples. And so I pray, Lord, that we would stop now and you would open our eyes 
and our ears and our hearts to receive this message. To receive your word. Not mine, but yours. And we ask all this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, um, there once was a, a wife who wanted to read a book. And so she looked for her reading glasses. She looked and looked and looked. She looked in the kitchen, in the living room, in her bedroom, in the hall closet, in the bathroom. I mean, she's looking everywhere. And the husband is quietly reading a newspaper on, you know, in his chair, right? And so he's reading. And she's like, honey, I can't find my glasses. And he's like, well, you just lost them. Keep looking. And uh, she does, goes all over the house again. And she's like, I, I can't find them. I'm so frustrated. He's like, well, I'm frustrated that these glasses, I can't see. I'm going to have to get a new prescription because they don't work like they used to. And uh, she's looking and looking and looking. I mean, like 30, 40 minutes later, she comes and she pulls down the newspaper and she looks at him and she goes, those are my glasses. And, uh, yeah, I mean, husbands do that sometimes. They're, they're awesome like that. But um, we, uh, we, need, we need a right vision, a right view of things. We need, to, we need help to see things properly. And in this text, Jesus takes uh, the disciples up the mountain so that they can see him clearly. Um, because we all have a problem of misunderstanding Jesus, of seeing him poorly. The disciples in Mark 8, some backstory here. You may recall the story where Peter, Jesus says, who do the people say that I am? And ultimately Peter says, you are the Christ. And he says, you have said rightly. And Jesus then goes on to say that he will die and suffer. And Peter, being the good disciple, takes Jesus aside. He's like, Jesus, come over here. I don't want to embarrass you. I'm going to take you aside. Let me tell you, Jesus, this dying business, not going to happen. And you know what Jesus says to him? Get behind me, Satan. You see, Peter had the wrong view of Jesus and what he was about. And he told Jesus that to his faith, and Jesus helped correct him. And our story follows right after that very story. And Jesus is going to show himself clearly. He's going to give them glasses to see Jesus clearly. And Mark 9, 8 might be the most important verse in all of Mark. Where it says, and suddenly looking around them, they saw, no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. He's, he's what you need to look at. And as Jesus says in 9.1, the kingdom of God, you will, some of you will not pass away until you see the kingdom of God. I think this is that event where they see, not the, they see the king of the kingdom. They're beginning to see that clearly. But what does Jesus show the disciples? What does Jesus show disciples on the mountain? Well, he shows them that he is king. Jesus is king. In Uganda, uh, we went on a small vacation to a town in Masindi, and I happened to catch on the television in the hotel lobby uh, this coronation ceremony, the 18th coronation ceremony of the king of Tororo. Now, Uganda is divided into many different kingdoms, and each kingdom has their own, you guessed it, king. All right, And they all have their own uh, ideas and things about things. But for this region of Uganda, 
Tororo, this king is getting coronated. And I don't think he's becoming king, but just saying, I'm still king. And this is the 18th anniversary of my reign. And what was fascinating about it is, is that the king is sitting, sitting there on his throne, or a throne, I'm not even sure. Uh, he has this giant uh, hat on his head, right? It's like just beautiful. He has a robe. I mean, it's a super, it would fall off the stage. Robe just so long. And he's sit, sit, sitting there uh, as the festivities take place. And, and you have their uh, uh, dignitaries gathered from around the kingdom and around the country to witness this event. And you have the press there. They're taking pictures and asking questions and observing. And even the president of Uganda himself shows up for this event. Well, that's what you have in this passage is basically a coronation ceremony. Jesus has supernatural clothes that no one on earth could do. He's got dignitaries there, Moses and Elijah, who represent the law and the prophets. And they also represent men who met with God on a mountain and thus could testify about who Christ really is. And so you also see Peter and James and John, people who are witnesses to this event, who can tell others about who Jesus really is. And even God Himself shows up to say, this is my Son, listen to Him. And so basically you have this whole thing saying, Jesus is King. Jesus is King. He's more than you think. Peter, you think, you want, the Jews wanted a king for Israel. They wanted a king to come and help Israel. And Jesus is saying, I am so much more than that. I'm so much bigger and greater than that, that God Himself would say, give me authority and say, listen to me. Jesus is showing them that He is not some small uh, tribal leader of Israel. He is a great, mighty king of all the earth. Peter's view was too small. He has, Jesus has the authority. And Jesus is more than we think. We need to realize that like the Jews, we have a small view of Jesus. In Uganda, we talked about this a little this morning, they, uh, they don't quite realize Jesus is over the spirits. Okay? Spirits sort of control everyday life, and you have to appease them for safety or health or wealth, and you go to the witch doctor. Or maybe you have your elders pray for you that the spirits would leave you alone. They don't understand that they are not subject to the spirits, but the spirits, if they exist, are subject to Jesus. They don't quite grasp that. In matter of fact, in uh, at harvest time, they have uh, matoke trees, which are basically like bananas. And you, they have to, uh, in the middle of the field, leave bunches of bananas for the spirits to appease the spirit for the harvest they just reaped. If they have a big party, one tribe has this uh, spirit. I guess it's the big party spirit. I don't know what you call it, but you have a big party. And you have to go into the like the back room where the food is prepared and stick food out the door with your right hand and give it to the spirit 
and he will be appeased and your party will be a success. Okay? I'm not making this stuff up. It's real. But it, they, they live in sub, subject to those things every day. But Jesus is bigger than those things. He, he, they don't need to fear those things. And in America, what? What rules us? Well, I think two things. One, that Jesus is somehow contractual. That Jesus is only as big as what I can earn from Him. Oh, you got this? You must be living right. It was a few years ago when I was in seminary. I had a buddy, a, a friend of mine from seminary, and I, we went to a Titans game. He was a Green Bay fan, so I brought him down to Nashville to see the Titans play Green Bay. And we're walking around, you know, looking for tickets. I need to, I need to. And we, we're talking to this tailgate, and we happen to just turn around, and we look down, and what do we see? Two tickets. On the ground, for free. Now, being good seminary students, we checked with the tailgate to make sure they weren't theirs. And, uh, but the guy we asked commented, somebody must be living right. Right? The reason you found that is because you've, you're living right. And for the smallest of seconds, I was like, yeah, I'm in seminary. Yeah, I'm, this is good. That's right. Um, but no, I mean, it, it's, Jesus is so much bigger than what we can even think we could earn from him. And just so you know, those, we took those tickets to the ticket office just to make sure we weren't in on like stolen tickets or something. And somebody had called them in lost. So we, in fact, weren't living well enough for those tickets. But uh, no... Uh, but yeah, it's like we think we can merit God's favor. That God is going to, Jesus owes us for this thing, right? Or that, or yeah, that that we're governed by circumstances. That you know, that that's God can't control that that aspect. But this all makes for a small Jesus. We must see him as. King. King of the universe. He is more than we can imagine. He is the creator and sustainer of the whole universe. King of every where and of every when. And seeing this Jesus is the only way to know peace. Like, this is what the world's after is peace. But if you don't see a Jesus is in control of everything, when things get crazy, you're going to worry. But if you see Him as King of the universe, you can have peace. even, And you won't have trouble trembling like Peter on the mountain here. So Jesus is King, but how will He use His kingly authority? Verses 9-13 through 13 tell us. You know, as they... Every good... Experience, you have to, as they say, come down from the mountain, right? So they're coming down the mountain, and Jesus is like, hey guys, don't tell anybody until I rise from the dead. And they're like, wait, what? Rise from the dead? What does this mean? Uh, and why does Elijah have to come first? Because resurrection from the dead is the end. So Elijah has to come before that. Um, so why? So they, they, they're confused about what Jesus is doing. Jesus, if you're this guy, this king of the universe, are you saying, what is this dying and suffering bit? 
Because Jesus in here refers to it twice. Once, until I rise from the dead. That is, I've got to die first. And two, in verse um, 12, that the Son of Man would, be, would suffer many things and be treated with contempt. So Jesus is saying, look, yeah, I am the king of the universe, but here's what I'm going to do with it. I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to lay down my life. I will suffer and be treated with contempt. And this is a category most of us don't understand today. It's a category they didn't understand then. It's in a category no one understands in Uganda. That a servant of God could suffer. And so, Jesus uses Elijah as John the Baptist. Now, there was a great prophecy in Malachi 4, the last book of the Old Testament, saying that Elijah would come to restore all things before the end. And so they're waiting for Elijah. Matter of fact, Jews today leave a seat at Passover for Elijah, I'm told. Um, It's a big deal. It's a big prophecy. And so they're, they're thinking, what about Elijah? And Jesus basically is telling them, John the Baptist was the Elijah that was to come. And what did they do to this Elijah? Not that he was reincarnated or anything like that, but just in the same spirit of Elijah that he came in to restore Israel back to God. John the Baptist came preaching repentance from sin. John the Baptist was beheaded. They, as Jesus says, they did to him whatever they wanted. The servant of God can and must suffer. And Jesus says, this is what I will do. This is how I will use my rights and my authority. Now, one of my favorite movies uh, of all time, outside of Star Wars, of course, you know, but um, is Les Miserables. I mean, is there a better story than this, really? That the, the, the poor Jean Valjean gets out of prison and he comes to the priest's house, and the priest welcomes him, gives him food and shelter, but what does Jean Valjean do? He robs him. And he, and he hits him on the head, at least in the movie. I don't know how it goes in the book. But, uh, Liam Neeson hits the guy on the head. That's the version I know. Uh, and he flees. And the police catch him. And he brings him back to the priest. And he says, the police are like, you, did he steal this from you? And he, the, you know what the priest does, right? He gets very angry at Jean Valjean. He's like, you should have taken the candlesticks also and the silverware and all this other stuff. You see, the priest could have used his rights to throw Jean Valjean in jail, but instead he used them to bless him, to forgive him. And that's what Jesus does. He uses his kingly rights and authority to lay down his life to solve our greatest problem. He considered our desperate plight as human beings, and that is, what is our desperate plight? Sin and separation from God. And he considered that, and he says, I will fix it. I will do whatever it takes. I will fix it. Jesus serves our needs, not our wants, thankfully. Okay? He serves our needs, not our wants. What did the Jews want? What did they want? They wanted Rome out of Israel. Right? This is the big problem of the day. 
That's what they wanted. So dying and uh, suffering is not in the picture for this kind of Messiah who's going to free them from Rome, right? What's the problem in Uganda? What do they think? If you were to ask the average Ugandan, what is the pro- what's the big deal? What's the big problem here? We don't have enough. We lack, basically, money. Okay? That's just going to be a general answer. That's, that's our problem. If we had enough money, we would be okay. Life would be good. The Jews thought if Rome was out of Israel, life would be okay. In America, what do we think? What do we think? I can't put it in one, but I think sort of this personal happiness bit, if I'm personally happy, personal, that's, that's what I need. I need personal happiness, personal comfort, and the way to get that is security, money, things like that. A good president, like that's a big deal, you know. You gotta have the right president. If I don't have that, I'm in trouble. All right. But um, and even in Uganda, let me tell you about a student of mine and how the prosperity gospel and the want of money is a is a real problem. I was actually teaching on Genesis, and the student we we were talking about the grace of God found there. And the student raises his hand and he says, "Um, Stephen." Uh, you know what? Right now, as of this moment, I no longer believe in the prosperity gospel. And and because he saw that the blessings that the prosperity gospel offer, health, wealth, happiness, are fleeting and not the blessings that we should be seeking from God, per se. Does that make sense? It, it, and he saw that. And, and it helps us see that Jesus didn't come to solve that problem. He didn't come to solve any of those. Jesus came to solve the problem we actually have. He came to solve the problem to to give us what we really need. There was a pastor uh, we met in Uganda where the... uh, we, We visited the church. I don't know, it was about two years ago now. And it was so small. It was smaller than a section here of the church. Okay, dirt floors, wood walls, maybe 20 people there. I don't think so. And about a year and a half later, he calls me and he's in Kampala and he wants to visit me. And I say, okay. And he comes and he tells me that they're looking for a sound system. Now, why do they want a sound system? To draw people in to hear the message, right? And I told him, I said, you don't need a sound system. You can, people can hear you just fine there. All right? In this small building, few people. What you need is to preach the gospel and draw people in that way. And when the crowd gets too big, then we'll talk about a sound system. Does that make sense? So he was focused on his wants and not what he really needs. And, that, and that's what Jesus did. He focuses on the gospel. And what does Jesus provide? What does Jesus? What did He come to provide? What did He come to give us? What blessings can we grasp hold of and say these are mine? Forgiveness of sin, peace that surpasses all understanding. We can have grace, boldness. We can have hope. He He promises us the Holy Spirit. 
And He gives us God as a Father. Those are just a few of the things that He actually, the, the things He provides, the things we need. But what's the, um, what's the solution to your problems? What's the solution to your problems? Is it a $900 million lottery? I heard it's $1.3 billion now. That's a lot of money. Is that going to solve your problems? If only we had that, then no. If Jesus and his death and resurrection aren't the answer, then you've got the wrong problem. You've got the wrong, you're focusing on the wrong problem. Rome was bad, but it wasn't the ultimate problem. The early Christians endured it, and they prayed for peace and endurance through those times. And they lived with it, knowing that God had provided what they needed to live every day. And this, we can only do this with the eyes of Jesus, with our eyes on Jesus, seeing Jesus as a servant, as a servant, providing what we need. As Mark 10.45 says, the Son of Man came to, not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. Now Jesus is the King, Jesus' servant, and let's put those together. Jesus is the servant king. Jesus is the servant king. He is the king, the one with power, who humbles himself to serve. And we have to see both in this text. Because it is our only hope, as well as our model. But how does the king, how does one with all the authority, serve how does one like that even to lay down his life? Love. Love. Love is why Jesus did that. Even as Romans 5.8 says, is that God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't do that because you're good looking. I mean, I know I'm good looking, I don't, you know, but no, I, I, he didn't do it for anything in us. He did it because he loves. He loves. He loves. In Uganda, I'm told about. Uh, actually, let me before we say that. But what do most think you do with power? What do most people think you do with power? If you have authority over everything, if you have Possession of everything. What do you do with it? Most people use it to serve themselves. To serve their own interests. To be selfish with it. As, yeah, to spend it on themselves, as one biblical writer says. But what does Jesus do with it? In Uganda, in the Buganda, which is the central region in Uganda... They have a king also, the king of Buganda. And uh, actually, I'm told that I'm a, in Luganda, king is Kabaka, right? And so Jesus is the Kabaka Wakabaka, okay? The Kabaka Wabakabaka, which I love saying that. I love it. The king of kings, right? So you, it's a lot of fun. But uh, so the king of Buganda is. Uh, he is there, and he has rights and privileges. When he goes into a village, I am told, I've never seen it, 
And I'm told that it may be fading out of usage today, but at least in the past. He would go into a village, and the villagers would, at least the men, would be required to do what? To lay on the ground side by side so that the king could walk on their backs as he entered the village. Sort of, I don't, I don't even know why. Maybe so he doesn't get dust on his feet or as a show of power. It, yeah, I don't know. But, um, but Jesus is the exact opposite. He's the king who comes and lays down so that we might pass freely. And that's what Jesus does with his kingly authority. He doesn't, he doesn't lord it over us. He lays himself down. That's what he does with his great power and authority. And that's what he calls us to do. And the question is, do you have power? Do you have authority? Well, I'm here to tell you that everyone in this room, from the smallest to the biggest, has authority or power in some way. And by power, what I really mean are giftings or abilities provided by God. Giftings or abilities provided by God. Another word we use for this is blessing. Okay? Blessings. If you've ever said, I'm blessed, then you should think, how am I using that blessing? But everyone has power or a blessing or, or some form of gifting or ability. And you have spouses in this room. You have parents in this room. You have children in this room. You, you have all sorts of relationships and, and, and interminglings and powers and authorities within this room. And even my one-year-old has power, okay? Because what happens when he takes the toy my four-year-old is playing with? Right? Peace? No. There is no peace when that happens. There is gnashing, much gnashing and weeping, right? Uh, gnashing of teeth. Anyways, so he has power over my four-year-old in a way uh, that not many do because he, he, can, do, he can make him uh, just so jealous. And sometimes you see him do it on purpose. Right? So don't sit here and think, well, I, yeah, but I don't have really any real power. Every one of you in here has the power to bless or love others. The, the ability and the blessing and the power to do that. Right? A gift from God. And the question is, how are you going to use that? And one example that I think helps maybe uh, this is husbands. A lot of especially today, is made about husbands as heads of the family, and what does that mean? They want to focus on the power side of the equation. But Ephesians spends a lot of time on the service side, because what does it say? Husbands, you are the head of your wives, therefore lord it over them and make them know it every day. Is that what it says? No. It says that you should love your wives as Christ loved the church and did what? Gave his life for it. Right? Yeah, husbands, you have the headship. But how are you to use it? You are to serve your wife in a way, in a humble way, as Christ served his bride. And so that's the model we have from Christ. Great power and authority that he had, he laid it down. And even what little power and authority He's given us, abilities and giftings, 
How will we use this? We cannot and we will not use them to serve others until we see Jesus as the servant king. Until we know the blessings He has come to provide for us. Until we know the love of God. The forgiveness of sins that He provides. And so our passage today serves as uh, sort of like the Wizard of Oz. Only in the Wizard of Oz, they march down the yellow brick road all the way down to Oz. They get to Emerald City and they expect to see something great and mighty and they pull back the curtain and, I don't know, it's a munchkin, right? Well, it's the exact opposite in this passage. They march down up the mountain and that Jesus pulls back the curtain and He is so much bigger and greater than they could ever imagine. And He's going to do something greater and uh, greater than they can imagine with that power and authority. See, Jesus is King and He is servant. And He is the servant King. And as Hebrews 12, 2 says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Then and only then will we know the blessings that He provides and be able to use them in ways that He would have us. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we love You and thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that we would never stop learning and growing in the grace and knowledge of Him. He is our only hope, Lord. And we ask You to make that real in our hearts. May we today know His power and His servant heart that blesses us, and may we walk in those same ways. And it's in His wonderful name that we do pray. Amen.